still believe we are the country others turn to, where in the regions that right now matter most, they're not turning to us. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Also with us is David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Finally, we have FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Guys, I just had an interesting lunch. I was with an ambassador from Eastern Europe. We were talking about the threat that the countries of Eastern Europe feel from Russia. We are in the year that will end with the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union, which was a watershed. Now, most millennials don't even remember it. They think the biggest thing that's happened geopolitically recently uh, in the past you know, couple of decades is 9-11. But this moment that occurred 25 years ago really hit the global strategic reset button in a way that not much has. And yet, 25 years later, if you go to the Pentagon today, they'll say the country that worries them the most is Russia. And if you go to Eastern Europe today, not only will they say that Russia worries them, but they'll point to Georgia and Ukraine as a place where the Russians have gone in. And they'll say, you know, if Russia goes into the Baltics or Russia goes into Bulgaria, they don't really think that the West will do anything about it based on what happened in Georgia or Ukraine. Russia's more active in the Middle East than it's been. And even though the economy is a mess, this, I think, is not the outcome that people expected 25 years ago. Now, David... You remember what happened 25 years ago. Are you suggesting that's because I'm older than the millennials? I don't know that I have to suggest that. (laughs) Corey? Yes? You're a millennial. (laughs) Do you consider Sanger one of your group? I can only aspire to be in any group David Sanger is in. Okay. That's why we have Corey on this podcast. I have a little bit of gag reflex going on here. Go on. David, you know, I just want to think back. I mean, this is such a big deal, and it's so shocking where we seem to have ended up. It is, and um, there are two completely opposite perceptions right now of what's going on. Perception number one is that Putin is true to his statement that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century and maybe the preceding few, and that he is basically out to undo this, and that our grand experiment in reintegrating Russia into the West, which was the idea of turning the G7 into the G8 and opening up trade and doing all the things that we spent the first 20 years of that 25-year period doing, has basically been a failure. Version number two, which I was just discussing at a lunch today with a Western European ambassador whose view was quite different from your Eastern European ambassador, which may mostly have to do with geography at this point. Their view is 
And I think it's fair to say the Obama administration's view is that Putin is acting out of weakness, that he never diversified his economy, that he's wildly over-dependent on oil. Oil, when we last looked, isn't doing so hot, and that he needs to keep all of this going to fuel some nationalism, to give a, a pretext for his own rule, and that he's going to burn himself out. Now, the problem is that there's a mid-range to these two that could be equally disruptive. And it's not that Russia turns around and does again what it did in Crimea, but that it's doing something like what it did in Ukraine in the Christmas week when the electric power in a big part of Ukraine went out in a cyber attack for just six hours. And then it went back on. And it was one of those signs of mess with me and I can show you what I can go do. And I think the bigger concern in 2016 is not necessarily that he's going to roll troops into the Baltics, that he's going to create a, a kind of crisis, though he's entirely capable of that, but instead that he causes just enough disruption to keep those societies both in line and from progressing. Okay, well, let's take this step further. And Corey, let me turn to you. You know, I've heard this argument over and over. Putin is weak. Russia is weak. And it's presented by the Obama administration, among others as a kind of a palliative. Well, they're weak, so don't worry about it so much. But weak countries are actually more dangerous, aren't they? And, you know, they, they tend to be forced. If you don't have an economic plan, then you wag the dog by pursuing something in, in terms of near-region uh, near ag aggression, you know, and that's actually worked politically for Putin. Putin may be weak, but he has more global influence today than he did at the beginning of the Obama administration. And if he gets weaker at home, he may be forced into doing things that are slightly more desperate overseas. Isn't this notion that, that, you know, that we focus on sort of downplaying the threat a little bit dangerous in your eyes? Absolutely it is, and for three reasons, David. The first is that you're Exactly right. States can be as dangerous in points of weakness as in points of strength because they can behave erratically. They can behave with less restraint. They can feel a domestic imperative to take reckless international action. The second reason you are exactly right, even if Putin's behavior is going to burn itself out because it can't be sustained with the resources he has, while it's burning itself out, it's setting off forest fires all over the place. Syria, Georgia, the behavior of Russia and our reaction to it has alarmed America's allies and it's causing them to change their behavior and not just America's allies in Europe. And the third reason the White House narrative, I think, is inaccurate and you, just to say it again, David, are exactly right. By the way, could we title this podcast, David Rothkopf is Exactly Right? <laughs> Thus making it a collector's item. <laughs> it seems to me that the United States is actually pretty good at managing rising powers. They're militaristic, they're aggressive, they're nationalistic, they're nouveau riche. In short, they're a lot like us. So we can understand their choices and we can find commonalities that can suit us both, right? Bob Zellick's famous characterization of China as a responsible stakeholder and powerful in the international order. The countries the United States tends to fight are not rising powers. It's the dead-enders. 
it's the countries that believe they deserve to be great and are not. And that is certainly where Russia is right now. Well, someday we have to do a whole you know, episode of the podcast on the term political scientist, which goes down with, you know, among the great oxymorons of all time. The notion, you know, to me, it's like a similar term would be astrological scientist. (laughs) Where political scientists take no data, build it into a model, and treat their speculation as though it were scientific conclusion. It's pretty fantastic, right? But we'll we'll get to that later. Yochi, you hang out a lot with the military. Um, In the conversations I've had with the Pentagon, and you sort of say, what are you worried about? This is way, way up the top of the list. In fact, it's beyond terrorism if they're behind closed doors. Is that your impression too? Yeah, I mean, we had a piece this week on a war game that was just run in which the scenario was Russia decides to do what may not be practical or plausible, but they do decide to do a full-on invasion of the Baltic, and the U.S. gets rolled over and demolished really quickly in a matter of hours in one scenario, in a matter of a day in another. So, yeah, there's this a concern. This was an American war game. It wasn't a Russian war game. A Russian war game even faster. Yeah. America would surrender and run tail between its legs. But these are smart military people doing smart military exercises, and in them we lose each and every time. It's a question just of how quickly and how badly. But they win each and every time. I had a conversation this week that was jarring to me. It was someone who just left the White House doing this particular region, this policy, and in describing— All right. Please email in to Yaki your guess as to who yeah. he's referring to. Go on. Exactly. Tweet at. Um, <laughs> but he said something that was either wishful thinking, and that's scary in one way, or an actual assessment, which is much scarier, in which he said that no one, in his view, was going to Russia, that the U.S. is the country that people want to go to, that our culture, our, our values, our society, and nobody wants to go to Russia. And I said, well, what about the Iraqis, the Syrians, the Turks, everyone who does want Russia to help? He said, well, besides them. And that to me was just such a jarring comment that we still believe we are the country others turn to, where in the regions that right now matter most, they're not turning to us. They're turning to Russia. Well, usual- this sounds to me, this kind of analysis makes me think that but we don't need political scientists to understand where the administration's thinking is. We need proctologists. Well, if you want to find where their thinking is. <laughs> as we all spit coffee into our microphones. If you want to find where their thinking is, ignore the proctology for a moment and focus on the budget. So... In the budget that's going up to Congress, Ash Carter, the um, Secretary of Defense, has now asked for one of the largest increases that I can remember in our troop levels, but mostly our armaments that we're putting along the Russian border. Exactly the kind of thing that we were all celebrating taking away in the years after the Berlin Wall fell. Now, when you ask people, are you putting those there because you expect a conflict, the hedge answer you get is we're putting them there to prevent a conflict and prevent exactly what we just heard from from Yoki, which was that you've got to make it clear early on to Putin that there's going to be a higher cost to rolling in than he would think, that we'll have too many forces there and so forth. My concern about this is that it's old think that the Russians will move the way the Russians moved back in the Cold War. And that's usually the first sign that we're thinking in the wrong direction. If you think about how he did Ukraine, if you think about how he did Crimea, it wasn't very much with overt forces. It was with, you know, the little green men. It was with things like that cyber attack I mentioned on the power grid. 
there are all kinds of much more subtle ways that he can disrupt the Baltics without going head-to-head with our new forces. So I want to object on a point of fact. It is true that in the budget they are proposing to spend $4 billion on European reinforcement and repositioning. But they are not stationing any additional forces. They are just going to rotate. They're rotated forces. That's right. And second of all, the brigade of heavy equipment they are putting into Belgium. That's a very pessimistic place to put your front line, right? (laughs) Yes, that's right. They're preventing the breakup of Belgium that they've all been worried about. (laughs) Well, you know, those Walloons. (laughs) (laughs) But I agree with David's point that the Russians would like Putin in particular would like to characterize himself as though this were 1956 and the CIA were saying the Russian economy is going to overtake ours in five years. Russia is not a great power. We are, in fact, reacting to them playing a bad hand well by playing into treating them like they're a great power and responding though it were 1956. David's right. We should be pressing the Russians on their weaknesses, not playing into the, we're going to fight a great tank war on the central front. Hold on to that thought a second, because I want to come back to it. But, you know, first of all, we talk Russia's weak, Russia's weak, Russia's weak. Russia's 11 time zones. It has lots and lots of nuclear warheads. ISIS has 30,000 people, has no money, has no territory. Everybody in the United States is terrified of ISIS, the size of a small junior college in Ohio, which no advanced weapon systems, no ability to project force out of its own region to speak of, except very, very minimal. And, and, you know, so ISIS, oh my God, hair on fire. Russia, empire that's been around for a long time, extends halfway around the planet, could destroy the planet many times over. They're weak. I, I mean, really? But I think one interesting thing with Russia is they get more bang for their buck, arguably. I mean, Putin's strategic goal for a long time has been to prop up Assad. Russia has spent less than we have. They've done fewer. You know, the airstrike numbers, you can argue about how many have been carried out, but ours cost a lot more. And they now are about to help him retake Aleppo. They're about to help him have his biggest battlefield gain in years. So they're doing for on the cheap what we have not been able to do by spending a lot more money investing a lot more of ourselves. And I think you're right. Like Russia has the ability to do these things without us worrying about them quite as much. 2016, everything now has a political agenda and a political angle. You hear Republicans say again and again, Mitt Romney was right. You know, Turn back to 2012 when he was mocked for saying Russia was our biggest enemy, our biggest threat. And he was right. That's what the Republicans now are saying again and again. And that's what the Democrats are kind of struggling to respond to. But nobody really knows how to frame it. I mean, President Obama tried to, his last day of the union, try to talk down the ISIS threat to sort of remind people they're not an existential risk, and he was hammered for it. Well, let me let me take a step back, and let me present something, and I'll turn to you first, Corey, when, when I do. I, I want to sort of present it in a strategic context. It'll take a moment. Way back in the early 1950s, when Sanger was just starting at the New York Times, you know, the pressure from the right akin to some of what you were just referring to, Yucky, was we should confront the Russians. We're going to have to fight the Russians. We're going to have to have a war. We've got to do what we did in World War II to the Nazis, to the Russians, conceivably in this decade. The president of the United States, fortunately for the United States, was Dwight Eisenhower. 
Eisenhower had led U.S. troops in Europe. He had no appetite for additional war. And so he decided that he had to find a way to defang and defuse all of this. And he created something called the Solarium Project, which was essentially a planning process where he got a bunch of big thinkers together representing the whole range of views. And he got them together in the White House, and they talked about different approaches. But he essentially cooked the books. And one of the reasons he was doing this was he wanted to get people to shift over to the idea that if we contain the Russians and let weakness of the system and entropy do its thing, and we focused on our own strength, over time the Soviet system would collapse and we wouldn't have to do this by war. We could do it um, uh, by other means. He essentially put into place the architecture of the Cold War in that respect and you know, half a century later, you look back on it and you think this was one of the great foreign policy moves of, of our time. And, and it underscores for those of you who are listening to this in your dorm rooms, you know, because you think it's going to help you get your international relations degree, which, by the way, is going to help you, you know, do nothing for the rest of your life. And you really need to rethink this and get something in an area where you could actually make a contribution to society. But, you know, it, it, those of you who are sitting there in your dorm rooms thinking about this kind of thing should keep in mind that some of the most important foreign policy moves of all time have been steps we haven't taken, not steps we have taken. That showed a lot of restraint, and that was very mature. So we then led to the period of containment. We took the <coughs> long view. We let them sort of destroy themselves from within. Well, now flash forward. The Soviet Union has collapsed. That plan seems to have worked. Um, we stopped paying attention to our alliance. Um, we really haven't rebuilt, revitalized NATO uh, in a long time. And what is, what is Russia doing? Russia is slowly but surely chipping away at the weakening of NATO. It wasn't just Ukraine. In 2008, it was Georgia. Then they've gone into Ukraine. Don't forget Estonia. Right. Uh, and and, and they've, they chipped away there. They've, they're chipping away and gaining influence in, in, in the Middle East. But by gaining influence in the Middle East and Syria, um, they're giving themselves the ability to keep roiling something that's sending refugees into Europe. And the refugees going into Europe are uh, promoting the case of right-wing groups in Europe that are weakening the EU. So slowly but surely, the EU is weakening. Meanwhile, they're doing other things, very subtle things. I think a third of the, the businesses in Bulgaria are part-owned by Russians. You know, there, there, there are um, uh, 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 the, the dependency of Europe on Gazprom's gas is often talked about as another way. So this is the opposite of containment. The Russians, weak as they are, are playing a long game and relying on the weakening of the EU, which is happening in every conceivable way, to sort of extend their influence, not dramatically, but little by little, in a kind of a much subtler way. This, this strikes me as a kind of a phenomenon we're not paying much attention to. Do I continue to be correct, Corey? <laughs> Indeed, you do continue to be correct, David. I have a very scary thing to tell you, which is, um, given that exegesis on the Eisenhower administration, which is that you have hit upon the subject of my PhD dissertation, which was strategy in the Eisenhower administration, by which I mean to say I am not going to relitigate the Eisenhower administration. 
I am simply for the first time in this podcast history going to have a legitimate basis for my argumentation, <laughs> that you're correct. <laughs> We've been waiting. We can now stop the podcast. We we thought this would go on for years. <laughs> having a legitimate basis is actually a disqualifying characteristic for being on this podcast. <laughs> I, on this subject of what are the Russians doing, I think it's really true that the Obama administration um, has taken an approach to the world that is less involved, less forward-leaning, you know, that um, characterized by expecting countries to take the lead on solving their own problems and us to contribute on the margin if it's in our interest. And um, that kind of recalibration, in my judgment, uh, it has been overdue. We have allowed to to accrue to the United States too much responsibility for other people's security outcomes. But the way you do it really matters. And the way the Obama administration did it, instead of setting allies up to be successful so they were confident as they did those things, we have instead created the sense of abandonment amongst our allies. And that makes crises more brittle. It makes allies more hesitant. And in a weird way, they end up more reliant on us because all the boats start rocking and nobody feels secure. And I, I do think the international order is not more dangerous than it ever has been, which frequently gets said by national security types. But it feels that way to a lot of people because all the boats are rocking. Well, also, I think there's a very important point to make here, because national security types always say things are worse than they've ever been, in much the same way that if you went with a business plan to a consultant, the consultant will always say the plan is terrible, because otherwise there's <laughs> no reason to have the consultant. Right. Right. But and, I do think the Russian strategy is that they benefit from destabilization. I think David Sanger's point earlier about the Russians you know, they don't necessarily want to invade their neighbors, but they want their neighbors to be worried about it all the time, to be, self, um, to be self-censoring where they are, where Russia's interests are concerned, to be fearful that we're not going to make good on any of our agreements, because everybody else being destabilized means that they are unsuccessful, and therefore Russia looks less unsuccessful than it deserves to. Okay, we've only got a couple minutes left here, but I have to ask the most important question. Yochi, do you feel bad? Corey has been supporting what David Sanger has said and what I have said, and she just hasn't mentioned you. <laughs> what are you, chopped liver? I think it's just a question of, my name is not David. I think if there's a third David, it would just sound, every David is right, and I get lumped in with, with the rest of you. However, as you know, this is probably the only podcast in the history of global podcasts where there are two people who are both named Jochenat. That's true. That's true, because Yochi's name is Yochanan, and my middle name is Yochanan. And is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, if you were to, Corey, if you were to say Yochanan, you're exactly right. David and I could both smile. Yochanan, you are exactly right. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Problem solved. I'm and, feeling so left out. And for all of the white supremacists who are saying, God, there are a lot of Jewish names on this show, <laughs> you know, all I can say is, go fuck yourselves. But... Uh, <laughs> And, and by the way, they're out there. You know, I wrote a column 
blithely, absolutely blithely a couple weeks ago, talking about the end of the influence of the white male. And, and essentially, it was demographics, right? Asia was rising. Women are rising. In, in the United States, for the first time in history, the under five cadre minority, former minority groups are now the majority. By 2020, that'll be the under 18 cadre. Everything is changing. And so the period of the biggest domination of white males, and it's just changing. I just thought, you know, this is, this is a statistical fact that ought to be mentioned. The venom that was unleashed in social media and on Twitter by white supremacists against me, sending me pictures of Auschwitz, of Jewish cartoons from the Nazi era. The, uh, there's apparently this thing on Twitter where if you take a name and you put it in multiple parentheses, it means Jew. And sort of going after this thing, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it was it, it was as repulsive, and it, but it's out there. It's out there, I think, also, and it's something a lot of us have experienced firsthand, me as well, with Donald Trump. I mean, it's obvious not to he, say that— Donald Trump has said this to you? He's, it's been a tough conversation. <laughs> but I made a comment about him on a radio show, and I got barraged both by email, Twitter, and Facebook of purely viciously anti-Semitic stuff, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, except some of it was directly threatening. It was— Here's a photo of Auschwitz. We're going to send you into Auschwitz. We're going no, to no, burn I got it. That. I got that. I mean, I got the same thing. I got, I got a picture of Auschwitz, and somebody wrote, "These ovens need cleaning." And it, it, it was just incredible to me because a lot of them were also explicitly in their in their emails or whatever saying, "This is why we need Trump, so Jews like you don't have influence." Right, and no one. I got that too. And I have to say, the Trump support out there is the national front. By the time people are listening to this, we're going to sort of maybe be moving beyond Trump in this campaign. And people go, "Okay, Trump's behind us." So I would like to make an unpaid political announcement, okay. which is that there is a terrific new social media platform called Parlio, and it is it being built by Whale Ghanem from Google, one of the real heroes of the Egyptian pushing out of Mubarak in 2011. He was a, a real hero of Tahrir Square. Look up his TED Talk where he talks about the invidious effect of social media discourse on our politics, and he's trying to start a conversation about how we can defang a lot of the kind of stuff you guys are talking about on social media. It's really important that we do this because the flames are getting higher of the kind of intemperate, ugly, and hurtful, and dangerous stuff that you guys were just describing. Well, it's in part because social media allows you to be either anonymous or closer to anonymous. There's also a, a tradition of an absence of civil discourse that permeates social media. But when you look at the this Trump— is, This is going to be our you, last comment yeah, in this podcast. When so. you look when you look at, um, at the Trump support, though, I think it's much broader than just people who would sign up for that kind of thing. I think it— reflects a, um, a frustration. You see it in the Bernie Sanders support as well. Uh, not only a frustration with elites, but a frustration with the fact that the demographic trends that David uh, just mentioned, and I, I will not contribute to those saying he's exactly right, even if he was, um, <laughs> but uh, that th those, those demographic trends, I think, feel deeply threatening to people who cannot figure out what the next 20 years looks like. No, it's, look, it's absolutely true. 
And by the way, while Ghanim, who was one of our leading global thinkers a few years ago, and who I met at TED last year, and he explained Parleo to me, helping to seek a solution for this, is doing something useful and important on this. And for more on it, I refer to you to Tom Friedman's column of a couple of days ago, which was actually on precisely this subject. For those of you who've listened to this podcast, you know that civil discourse is never absent. Here we have seen once again Corey Shockey being supportive of her colleagues um, and showing the kind of collegiality that makes Stanford the place that everybody wants to be today in America. Particularly uh, in the winter. Particularly, <laughs> right, particularly in the winter, particularly people who don't like wearing shoes. Um, it is 54 degrees and sunny. That's really beautiful. Um, there are people wincing in this room. In any event, we will continue our discussion. We will continue our civil discourse and the mutual respect we have for all of us in the next edition of the Editor's Roundtable podcast. In the meantime, we hope that you will join us again and thank David Sanger and Yucky Driesen and Corey Shockey for being here today and tune in again soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.